The Insurance Brokers Podcast is brought to you by Sarah Myerscoff of Boston Tullis. Welcome to the Insurance Brokers Podcast with your host, Sarah Myerscoff. This business podcast is for ambitious brokers determined to grow their business. Our guests are highly experienced industry experts and innovators. This is the place to leverage their success, learn how to break through barriers to growth, and discover a community of support and ideas whilst growing your business. Good morning, Gary. I'm really excited to have you this morning on the Insurance Brokers Podcast. So welcome. So, semi-professional rugby player through to market leader in property insurance in South Africa. Please talk me through that story. Um, semi-professional, that sounds awfully grand. I mean, I received a little bit of money in a brown envelope from time to time um, when I played rugby, uh, particularly in South Africa. Um, but certainly I started out with aspirations uh, that rugby would come first. And I thought, I probably thought I was better than I really was. Um, so I played a, a reasonable level of rugby. Um, when I came to the startling conclusion I wasn't quite good enough to make a full-time career out of it. Um, I decided I should sit some insurance exams, uh, which I did. Um, and by then I'd worked roughly wherever I was playing rugby. So I'd worked originally around the Eastern counties. Um, then I was working in London. Then I was working in South Africa. So that gave me the opportunity because my companies were good enough to sponsor me whilst I was playing rugby and touring to various uh, countries whilst they were good enough to sponsor me, I started to pick up my trade, I guess. Um, and certainly by the time I was 28, 29, when I realised I wasn't really good enough uh, to do my, to complete my first love, as it were, um, I started to take insurance seriously. And, and, and that's where I found myself. I think I was always keen um, and enthusiastic about the concept of starting my own business um, as well. And always in the back of my mind, I've always been impressed by various entrepreneurs in various industries, back from various backgrounds, etc. Um, and I think I was always destined one day to start my own businesses. But when I was in my twenties playing rugby, that business could very well have been something other than insurance, I guess, at that time. How old were you when you started your first business, and what business was it? Um, my the first business. Um, that I started with any real venom. I was 35 um, and I started a business with a friend of mine, Dave Manuel, a business called Emerald. We started that in South Africa and we built that out into two or three other territories as well. Um, but certainly I was 35 before I started to um, go my own way, as it were. Do you remember the pivotal point at which you went, hmm, I'm going to start a business called Emerald. Uh, well, the name came from a green E that I'd seen on a uh, computer drawing. And I really liked this green E. And I thought that should be our logo. I had no idea, idea at the time that the green E was cut out of Emerald Stone. So it was the logo that came first, in actual fact. In terms of the business, I think it's fair to say that Dave, who, who was my mentor really, he was the one that kept saying to me, we should do this, we should do this, we should create our own MGA, we should look to create our own capital, we should set, set up our own cell captives, we should buy our own reinsurance. And I think 
it's fair to say, no, I don't think I know it's fair to say that Dave was very much the instigator of that. And because I liked the sound of it and because it gave me the opportunity to run my own business um, and not without a certain amount of ego, I suspect, I, um, I thought that's a great idea, let's do it. Emerald has been hugely successful and you are about to embark on uh, Sapphire uh, or are already in the process of, which is incredibly exciting. What lessons did you learn in the early days that you're mindful of now as you're, as you're going through the process of, of Sapphire? I think in the early days of Emerald, we had such a lot of fun and we kept making the, we made our own rule book. Uh, we made loads of um, mistakes along the way, I, I suspect. Well, I know we made a load of mistakes along the way. I think we had enormous fun and my partners at the time, Dave was a lot older than me. Uh, the other partner involved at the time was a company called Supergroup. Because Supergroup and Dave were ready to sell, I was dragged along in that process because uh, as a 30% shareholder, I certainly couldn't uh, stop the sale going through. And, and I supported the sale at the time. But Dave and Supergroup were at different ends of their um, lifespan, if you like, with regards to the insurance uh, setup. So certainly with Sapphire, I am the dominant shareholder in the UK company, one of the South African companies. Um, the trading company in South Africa at the moment, I'm a 49% shareholder, but my partner out there is an established South African insurance company called Bright. So the very, very setup with Sapphire is slightly different from Emerald, and I've certainly got a different end in mind. I think naively, when we set up Emerald, we didn't know where the journey was going to take us. And after several years, when the opportunity came along to sell it, we all got quite excited. And I understand a lot of the M&A activity going on at the moment around the industry. A lot of this is based on emotion and excitement because everybody likes to see, we, we, we complain about change in, in many, uh, many times in our lives, but the, the idea of changing ownership in something that you're involved with is quite an exciting process. And I certainly have enjoyed buying and selling companies over the years, so I understand that. But, so, but with Sapphire, I, I certainly want to be around for the long game. I want Sapphire to be independent for as long as possible. I think what you've said there about um, uh, emotional decision is, is really interesting. I've done quite a lot of reading um, over the years, and something that comes out really strongly is we all make decisions on emotion and we justify with logic, but um, but maybe don't acknowledge that it's an emotional decision. And I'm, I'm terrible at making emotional decisions, but I hold my hands up and say, I want it and I don't care. Uh, whereas my business partner is the, the, the logical one of us that goes, hang on a minute, you know, let's let's think about that. So I do think you need that dynamic in a different um, sort of, you know, in business and in life, I suppose, in, in um, different people and different personalities. One of the things that, um, uh, that I've read recently um, is a, a book that does uh, case studies. It's gone through seven or eight different case studies on startup NGOs and startup carriers in the US and their journey from, um, from sort of identifying the gap in the market through to 
the insurance solution uh, that, they've, they, that they've put forward. And one of the strong points that came out of that was how you have to have your team at the top has to cover, has to be, there's no gaps in that team at the top in terms of ability, capability, interest, um, uh, drivers, you know, you've got the big ideas and then you've got the process orientated people. How, how have you, what kind of, what bumps have you had along the roads in terms of, in that respect, and how are you managing that with Sapphire? Because you've got lots of different partners involved, haven't you? Yeah. So, so first of all, it is about the people. Uh, you need the right skill sets involved. With Sapphire, we're spending a lot more time and energy than I ever have done in my life with the technology backing up the business. But even still, you you really require the good, the, the, the strong people to to distribute our products. There's no question about that. And we can't get past our personalities uh, being the most important part of the Sapphire setup, in my view. You can borrow or use capital from different places. You can use different technology. You can decide on a different product range and a different geography, but you still need the, the, the professional output. And, and in fact, I would say one of the biggest hurdles I have currently with Sapphire is that there are several people who will be joining us during the next 18 months. And it's during the next 18 months, mainly because they're going to be sitting in the garden because they're on contracts and restraints with their current people. But I'm willing to wait for the right people. So what it means uh, is at the moment, there's a lot of pressure on two people in the UK. There's a lot of pressure on nine people in South Africa at the moment. Um, there's a lot of pressure on the technology requirements that we're pushing through. So we're having to ride that out a little bit because it's more important to me that I get the right people and wait for some of those people a little longer. We need to have the, the, the full gambit. The, the, what's happening with the MGAs in the US is quite interesting as well because if you follow recent press, some of them are suggesting now that there's gonna be their own security rating for MGAs. So just as insurance companies have their own ratings, MGAs might be going that route. The reason that interests me is a lot of our future will be based around our own cell captives. And our own cell captives themselves will probably be only as good or as successful um, as their security allows us to. So the whole movement um, of MGAs within the industry towards a more formal, a more formalized capital uh, solution I think is a really, really good one. And that's something I never anticipated until we started Sapphire a couple of years ago. You mentioned that's a movement uh, starting in the US. Are there inklings of that in the UK? I, I've got no doubt there are. I mean, certainly the formal, the formalized structure in the UK, certainly the, the MGA Association is has teeth now. Certainly it's been more well-respected um, there was mention in the press this week of one MGA group looking at acquiring a large organisation. So, so there's a lot more acceptance about how MGAs are moving forward. I think it's fair to say that when we started, um, when I started in the MGA world 20 years ago, MGAs were certainly perceived as the poor relation um, in the insurance setup. That's changed um, a, a significant amount. And the large broken houses right now, part of their growth is around their own in-house MGAs. So in the UK, it's certainly 
certainly there are massive steps going forward. There's talks going on um, with the Lloyds environment now. Um, the use of syndicate in a box as another alternative uh, capital stream. I think it's fair to say that the MGA footprint as we see it now will be very different in two or three years time. I think um, I'd, love, I'd love you to read the book I've just read and then I'd love to have a conversation about it. I think it has some really interesting views. Um, the book is The Future of Insurance written by Brian Falchuk and he um, seems to be talking about it in all my podcasts at the moment so people that listen will be like Bloody hell, Sarah, we don't even need to read the book now. Um, but um, I, I interviewed Brian about his book a week or so ago. Um, and one of the, the themes that came out of his book was a lot of uh, the US startups that he, he looked at started off as an MGA and realized that they were so restricted by their carriers that actually they'd gone on and, and you know moved into the carrier space. Yeah. I think that what you're doing with Sapphire is is a bit different. Can you will you talk us through the business structure of Sapphire? Yeah. So when I I effectively ran two other MGA groups after I sold Emerald, and one of them gave me uh, the opportunity to run seventeen separate binders across the globe, and. I don't know why it took me so long to come to this natural conclusion because everyone else probably got there a lot earlier than I did. But certainly there was a lot of uh, duplication of costs. When you run a load of binders and a load of different geographies across a load of different products, in my opinion, you shouldn't have capital from 17 different sources. You shouldn't have 17 sorts of technology. You don't need quite so many finance environments. There's a lot of common threads to an MGA from the US to Mauritius to Australia to France to Eastern Europe and, and in fact the, the, the very core of the strategy of Sapphire again I don't claim this is unique I really really don't um, but at the, the core of the strategy is that if I find an underwriter that the reinsurance market will support and that underwriter writes a product and that product could be energy insurance or it could be pet insurance and he could be in Australia or he could be in Kazakhstan. It doesn't really matter. The fact is that he's got capital support behind him and he's got distribution because presumably in his particular territory, the brokers know him or her. If I can find that individual, I want them housed within Sapphire. At the same time, what I'm saying to carriers, and I'm talking about local insurance licenses, and I'm talking about the reinsurance, what I'm saying to them is, if you're going to back my lady in Kazakhstan or my guy in Australia writing whatever kinds of insurance it might be, A&H would be another uh, good example, whatever it might be, why don't you follow us across the piece? And certainly... When we started Sapphire, one of my first trips was to Baden-Baden, which is the annual, which carries the annual reinsurance uh, conference. It's, it's run pre-COVID. It was run every October. We'll see what happens this year. Um, and I, I, I gave that story over because I, would, I didn't want to be limited to one territory. So at the moment, the first product we've got off the ground is a corporate property in South Africa. But certainly we're going to be involved in other products in other geographies as well. And I want 
the guys that have given me the chance to write on, on their insurance licenses and who've given me access to their reinsurance capital and who hopefully will be willing to support my own cell captive, Sapphire cell captive in the future. I want, the, I want a degree of commonality into the overall picture. And the overall picture is the individual is the underwriter in that particular territory with the product, but behind that individual, the Sapphire technology infrastructure and the Sapphire reinsurance piece will hopefully support in a cost-effective um, and an efficient manner their opportunities to write business. That's incredible. And I think one of the things that I've learned is about finding the gap um, or the, the, the different way of thinking or, or solving a problem. And I think it's really interesting what you've done because there is a massive amount of friction in the insurance market generally. And I suspect that's not limited to the UK. And yeah. listening to Brian, I, I can see it's there in the US. So to know that it's in Kazakhstan and, and, and uh, Australia doesn't surprise me. So I think it's a really interesting solution to uh, to uh, to an interesting problem and an age-old problem, really. Yeah, just to be clear, I don't know anyone in Kazakhstan. So if there's anyone listening to this from <laughs> Kazakhstan that does insurance or A&H, I'm all ears. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, we actually have a global reach for the Insurance Brokers podcast. I'm always surprised when I look at the stats about where people are listening from. Uh, so anyone in Kazakhstan, get in touch with Gary. He'd love yeah. to hear from you. Right. <laughs> um, what about straying slightly from, from what it is you're doing? You've obviously got a, a great network uh, and a global network. What you know, there's all this talk about halving market, there's talk about the global economic crash, and there has been by what what do you see happening? What do you think the next five years looks like from an uh, economy, global economy standpoint? Um, so I certainly wouldn't claim to be an economist, but what I would say is the fortunes of reinsurance capital and insurance capital are directly affected by it. Certainly, when you had global event and a global event could be localized like 9-11 was or localized like Katrina was back in 2006. They had knock-on effects to reinsurance rates globally because fundamentally at the time a big event in the United States did affect the reinsurance footprint in other territories because they were looking to change their aggregation models um, and they were looking to make up for some of the losses they had elsewhere. The, the, the COVID losses, and I'm not going to comment on how, where they're going to end up being, but one thing for sure, they will cost a number of capital providers a lot of money somewhere. I saw a, a press release last week that Willis Bree was suggesting that uh, there was the market was moving back towards equilibrium. I have no idea if that's true yet. In my, in my world, I'll know more about that at the end of the year when I go and get my own reinsurance protections in place. But certainly last year, just about everyone I've met paid significantly more for their reinsurance. And those costs have to be passed down somewhere and they usually pass back to the, to the policyholder. I personally think that's going to happen for another year or so. I, I personally think that we need to create some payback for an extra year or so. But I could be wrong, and market forces will change. Will certainly change that. Again, 
what insurance companies around the world will be looking at right now is at what level they're buying their protections. So to save money, they might take more risk themselves. If the knock-on effect of that is after a really bad year, they have bigger losses, I'm afraid that still means the rates are going to harden. Um, I, think, I think it's too early to say. I couldn't give you with any accuracy about the, the five-year period, but I, I will say that the, the capital movements would follow the economic movements and probably take another year or two to get to what's been described as equilibrium. Mm. I think that's interesting. Just just something that's popped into my head from what, what you just said, slightly left of centre, but hey-ho. Um, one of the things that I'm quite intrigued about, and I'd like to learn more about, so if anybody listening wants to talk to me about it, then please get in touch. So one of the things that I'm interested in is startups, uh, uh, the insurance model in the US, there is a, an obscene amount of venture capital going into the market. And listening to some of these case studies, there's, there's you know, three, four, five funding rounds that go through before companies even trading. Uh, and the model is, 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 you know, massive. You're talking millions and millions. I know there's a lot of PE money in the UK, but it seems to be being distributed differently uh, in terms of, uh, you know, you don't hear of five funding rounds of millions before something's actually live and going out in the same um, way that you are in the US. What, what do you think, how do you think that's going to affect, do you think we're going to follow the US, do you think, what do you think about that? So, there's a lot of M&A press at the moment around, so we're just gonna, we're looking now with interest, aren't we, on what might happen with the Aon Willis thing out of the US because they've got different hurdles to cross. Certainly back in South Africa, they've dealt with that particular merger in a slightly different way. So each territory has its own approaches to M&A and each territory has its own processes around raising income. Certainly, I wouldn't uh, suggest that I'm an expert in raising the kind of finance that's being publicised at the moment. One organisation is looking to refinance its own debts using a few hundred million dollars. Uh, they're amazing sums um, that, have been, that have been discussed. I think for as long as people see a return in the insurance and reinsurance field, there will always be money available. I think there will always be venture capitalists, there will always be individual investors that think there's a way to make money um, better in the insurance environments. And the M&A cycle, I don't think it's gonna go away. I think it's gonna continue. And in many ways, that makes it exciting. I have to say in the broken world, I think personally, it's a shame when you see fewer brokers, for me, that's fewer customers, um, for the policyholders, that might be less choice. So at the broken level, I think it's a shame. I, I would say at a capital level, it's probably inevitable insofar as to achieve real economies of scale, when you're talking about hundreds of millions and billions of dollars, um, certainly the economies of scale achieved in, in the capital world, I can absolutely buy into. Mm. I think it's really interesting. I think the next five years are going to be really interesting. One of the things that 
I did a, a podcast, the first podcast I ever did actually, well over a year ago now, was um, with Peter Cullen. And he said he thinks the next 20, 30 years, um, the big players in the insurance global market will be Amazon and Google. And, um, and you know, following on from that, InsureTech and insurers, you know, legacy carriers, whatever you want to call them, there won't be a distinction between, you know, there won't be that distinction anymore. We'll be just insurance and it'll be very tech-based. Um, and the amount of money that's coming into that now is, is in the billions, which astounds me. It's so interesting. So I am I'm convinced that in the world of homogenous insurance products, so motor insurance would be the, the best example of that, I, I would think. Um, but also household insurance, small commercial insurance. I can see why the various aggregator models are leaning heavy, uh, more and more heavily on technology. And I can certainly, again, all the time we're seeing people investing in, in various systems and various ways of distributing the product. And I can see the arguments around Amazon and Google um, on those homogenous pro uh, products. MGAs tend, not all of them, MGAs tend to look at what is euphemistically de um, described as specialist business. That's probably a bit pompous, but um, certainly if I take corporate property insurance in South Africa, for example, I think there's only four or 500 clients. So modeling something around four or 500 clients, um, it doesn't matter in my view how good you are as an actuary what IT system you've got to back you up. I don't think you're going to model those four or 500 clients successfully. So there you need professional help and expertise, in my, in my opinion, to underwrite those four or 500 products particularly well. And, it, and, and I'm not sure what the magic number is, but certainly I would think you could argue the same about energy insurance in the US. You could argue the same about casualty insurance in many, different geographies. I think specialist business, MGA related business, the business where reinsurers have more confidence back in one person as opposed to another. And that's what we see. And when we go to Baden Baden, you will see a big German reinsurance company will have a discussion with two or three people writing the same products and they will have a different idea and a different approach and a different rating structure for one person's reinsurance over another because they believe their specialist skills in professional indemnity insurance for dentists is better than, than the next person. Mm -hmm. So I believe that, that that approach is absolutely right with homogenous business. I'm probably bound to say this um, because of what I represent. But I don't think that's going to be the case in the MGA world for a while yet, anyway. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you in terms of the, the, the sort of complexity and the requirement for, for real uh, professional expertise. But I also think there might be a space for, um, for in, well, I think you're doing it by taking the friction out using uh, process and, and technology that's where I see InsureTech be, you know, InsureTech is used in so many different ways for so many different things, but identifying a gap and then using technology, AI, data, 
to um, to minimise friction and make the ultimate journey better. And that's what what the way I see everything going, which I think is going to be very interesting. And you're doing it, so I'm really intrigued uh, to sort of come along that journey with you and, and learn. So I think it's going to be a really really interesting one. Um, I think uh, on a I think what you're doing is fabulous. And what I'd love to hear from you, please. What's your biggest blooper? What is uh, over your your career? Your you, you know hugely successful career. What what's your biggest like? Oh no moment where you get in the shower and you go oh really did that happen? Uh, I'll give you two with the same reason. One uh, at Emerald we opened up in Australia, and secondly at Emerald we opened up a loss adjusting um, environment. Both were good ideas, by the way. The concept of, and I'll I, I get involved with loss adjusting and, and Australia again, nothing wrong with that. Um, and yeah, so great, great ideas that uh, the loss adjusting was gonna support our corporate property outlook in South Africa. Our Australian strategy was to support all the various mining managers that were moving from South Africa to Australia. Great ideas, nothing wrong with the ideas, um, but the implementation uh, and I was responsible for it, um, no one else. The implementation taught me a lesson. And I think the biggest uh, lesson was that we tried to grow too quickly and I wasn't focused on what I was doing uh, at the time. So I was building out our corporate property offering in Africa and I allowed myself to be distracted and two things happened. I mean, in Australia and the loss adjusting environment, I didn't give them the support they needed, but it also affected what I was doing in Africa with their own piece. And for, I would say for about 18 months, I had my eye, well, I had my eyes everywhere and they weren't focused on one particular uh, thing. So with Sapphire, we've started in South Africa and it's received all of my attention up until the time that my next two or three people join join me that will be absolutely the case but we'd like to build out our offering um, we'd like to be involved in other products we'd like to be involved in other investments and but one step at a time uh, now is probably uh, the way i would look at it until i have the resource around me i the biggest mistake i would say any nga environment would have would be not to focus on one particular goal um, or rather, they must focus on one particular goal. Mm, I don't think that's an NGA-specific business problem. It's a business problem that I grapple with daily. It's probably, uh, it probably goes back to ego as well, you know. Um, and I just thought I could do all these things uh, so much quicker. And I, I'm, I'm, I tend to get impatient when things don't move at the speed that I expect. That I expect. Um, so the lesson was a personal one, but I can tell you it cost it cost us some money um, <laughs> as well, which uh, probably made it a very expensive, very expensive lesson. Those are the lessons that you learn quickly from, though, aren't they? So, um, I, I was telling you earlier, I'm just writing my um, personal statement for an award that I've been nominated for. And you have to write about personal challenges, etc, etc. Biggest, biggest thing for me for the last two years is, is is me learning about me 
and I have a tendency to run before I can walk. I have a tendency to want everything yesterday and I'm responsible, so I'm going to go and do it. And I always take it on the chin. I take the responsibility and the work, but I, I really need to rein myself in on the focus. So that's another reminder, Gary. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, one last, 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 last thing. Who do you want to speak to? Who in the uh, listeners of the Insurance Brokers podcast is it that you think a conversation would be of interest with? So, in terms of uh, focus, if you like, my, the, I would be very interested to uh, talk to any underwriters out there that had a desire to have more say in their own futures. So, in terms of the, uh, the growth of Sapphire, there will be underwriters out there that currently work for organisations and I'm hoping they're the kind of underwriters that would be backed already by capital in other places. So if there is an underwriter and is involved in Kazakhstan um, dentists PI <laughs> um, or any, any geography or any products and they think that they will get backing from capital and the capital could be Lloyd's based capital. It could be uh, reinsurance treaty based capital or an insurance license in a local uh, in a location. They're the sort of people I would love to talk to and see if I can help them with uh, some aspirations and uh, future thoughts. Fabulous. You've heard it here. Go speak to Gary if you are based in Kazakhstan. <laughs> um, Gary, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed our conversation this morning. So thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you have enjoyed what you have heard, have any questions or feedback, please leave us a review and we will be sure to get back to you. If you would like further information on how Boston Tullis Group can support your business, or if you would like to join us on an episode, please do not hesitate to contact us.